This is heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Be Heard Talk, an award-winning talk show that adds a taste of hip-hop, a side of Shakur, and spice to unflavored news. Each Sunday, we discuss race, politics, and culture from an unapologetic Black millennial perspective, and we give you the chance to be heard. So leave your comments on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn, and we will read them throughout this show. My name is Selena Hill, and I'm the founder of Be Heard Talk and the digital editor at Black Enterprise. And I'm super excited to be here with you all to discuss the nation's return to normalcy, which in actuality just means regular racism after four years of blatant racist rhetoric and dog whistles that embolden white nationalists and supremacists to basically take their hoods off in exchange for MAGA hats. In addition, we'll also talk about if and how we can pass a radically black agenda under the Biden administration with our featured guest, Angelo Pinto, a movement lawyer and the co-founder of Until Freedom. Now, before I introduce my co-host, I wanna thank our official media partner, Black Enterprise, as well as our sponsor, Black Spectrum Theater. Start your subscription today and enjoy Black Spectrum home video series. Subscribe today to check out a conversation with Vivica A. Fox on January 29th. Head over to blackspectrum.com to become a season pass subscriber and to learn more today. Now let's start the show by kicking things off with my co-host, Stanley Fritz. Hey, Celine, oh. what's going on, world? This hey, is Stanley, how's it going? Pretty good, Slim. You got your Tiger Woods red on. I love it. It's actually orange, but it's probably hard to see it, but it's all good. Go ahead. <laughs> well, what's going on, everybody? This is Stanley Fritz, your favorite engineer on the PC ones and twos. Currently retired because we're on the internet twos and threes and fours. You can follow me on Twitter at Stan Fritz. You can follow me on IG at Stan Fritz. You can follow me on Clubhouse at Stan Fritz. And I'm excited to talk with all of you guys today, even those of you in the chat who consistently call me lame. Even Excuse me, Ivan, Sherry, Brooke, Adele. Excited to talk to all you guys. So keep the comments coming all show. Thank you. So unfortunately, Tammy could not be here with us, but we are joined by our correspondent, Tiffany L. Brown. Tiffany, please let the world know what it is that you do. Hi, I'm Tiffany. Um, you can follow me on social media at TiffLizB. And I work in the labor, labor movement uh, New York City. So I kind of focus on higher education issues for the labor movement. And personally, I'm really passionate about like Black Lives Matter issues, social justice and things of that nature. And I'm happy to be joining you guys today. It's been a while. So I miss you guys. So we miss you as well. And shout out to all those leaving comments. We miss you guys too. let us know where you are checking in from from wherever you are stationed or based. Um, so shout out to you guys and keep the comments coming. I'm gonna actually kick things over to you, Stanley, with the news roundup. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. We definitely have an action-packed news roundup for you guys. Listen, guys, this is the news roundup. We talk about things that made you laugh, cry, curse, flip the table, scratch your head, or make Yolanda go. I see why they never built that tower. It's too many cults out there. Yolanda, I'm with you 100% on that. But we're not here to talk about cults yet. We're here to talk about the news stories that made us all stop and think for a second. So let's start off with the biggest news of the year and the biggest news of the week, the presidential inauguration. Four years ago, we all watched as Donald Trump had his inauguration and the Proud Boys and Antifa riding all across D.C. 
This year, we saw Biden's inauguration, Michelle Obama's killer outfit. We saw Jennifer Lopez remix the American National Anthem. We saw Obama's come through looking amazing as usual. How did you guys feel about the inauguration? Um, did you watch it? What were your favorite moments, Lena? Yeah, so I felt a steady flow of relief watching the inauguration, knowing that no more will we have these tweets that changed policy rhetoric and just were just so awful. Definitely all these dog whistles and, you know, shouts out to the Proud Boys and, you know, our president saying that he loved um, the insurrectionists. So I was very relieved. And much like much of the internet, I'm still gushing over Bernie's grumpy chic ensemble, which stole the show at the inauguration. Yes, Bernie came through like the grumpy native New Yorker that he is. And I was so here for it. Not only did he go, not only did he go viral, but so basically that image of Bernie is now being sold on crew neck and crew neck sweatshirts for about $45 that are made in the USA and union printed. And in true Sanders fashion, he's actually dedicating all of that money back to Meals on Wheels in Vermont, his home state. So yes to Bernie. And also I also want to just shout out Amanda Gorman because her poem, baby. Okay, like, yes, Amanda, she came through. She's a 22-year-old Harvard graduate who was actually born with special needs, who literally just killed it at the inauguration. She basically um, embraced and embodied, I think, so much sentiment of this of this current zeitgeist. So she was so brilliant. We actually did an exclusive interview with Amanda a few years ago on Black Enterprise. So check out blackenterprise.com to see and learn more about Amanda and her incredible journey. Tiff, what was your favorite moment from the, from the inauguration? I think my favorite moment from the inauguration was definitely Michelle Obama. I mean, literally, I put all like I saves in my uh my Instagram like bookmarks. I was like, oh, I'm gonna get a sew in next month because her hair was just flawless. It was everything, and it was such like I don't know if you saw that people were doing like the side by side comparison of like how she looked at last year's um well the inauguration for trump compared to how she came through for the inauguration for joe biden so i was like ah oh, thank you thank you some sort of normalcy has been restored so it was great to see the obamas um and i just really enjoyed just the twitter camaraderie because i feel like anytime there's these huge um events that happen it's always good to be on twitter because black twitter never ever uh fails us when it comes to these sort of events Yo, Bernie Sanders looked like when you go out with your boy and he's trying to talk with somebody. So he's like, yo, just hang out with her homegirl real quick so I can make my move. That's what Bernie Sanders looked like. He looked like that homegirl. <laughs> my college days, I've definitely tried to make conversation with a sister sitting like that in the club. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I don't know how that one landed, Stanley. I don't know how that one landed. But uh, we do have Angelo Pinto here. What's up, bro? Thank y'all for having me. I'm glad to be here. How are y'all doing? We are doing well. Definitely need to get your feedback on the inauguration. You know, after four long years of Donald Trump, how are you feeling at this inauguration? I feel like it's bittersweet. It's like, um, you know, we were doing the work that we knew we had to do to get Trump out of there. But I think there still is a lot to be desired when you look at a presidential 
elected official like Joe Biden and even I think Kamala Harris, when you look at the Biden administration, given their track record, particularly around things like mass incarceration. So it's a challenging moment. I think people want to celebrate and people did a lot of work. A lot of organizers around the country did a lot of work to get us here, to get us these wins. But we're in a place now after the celebration because of the inauguration that can we keep celebrating? Um, and that's going to require some very serious wins from Biden that I don't think we've seen yet for black folks. I think he immediately started doing some things for some other folks, but for black folks, it's really yet to be seen what Biden will deliver. So it's a challenging moment. For sure. And just to add to Angelo's point, it was definitely bittersweet for me. And we're going to talk about this later on in the show because this return to normalcy, like I don't want to return to normalcy, right? This is a time for America to make amends for um, the, the sins of the past that are we are still reeling from and feeling the effects of. This is a time for us to call for reparations. And this is a time for America to really promise to be a better, fair, and just country. We've never had that. that. The American normal was always racist. And that's why I'm super excited to actually get into that a little later on um, with Angelo. But I'm gonna throw it back to Stanley for the news roundup for some of the lighter stories before we get into yeah, the and we'll definitely talk about what Biden has planned and some of the executive orders he signed in his first two days. He signed 17 executive orders in his first day, so we'll definitely get to some of those. But until then, I want to switch on to some more light, petty, interesting things. And I, and I can't tell you how happy I am to have these regular basic problems again. So apparently, there's been some folks who feel offended for Kamala Harris's husband because they say being called the second husband is emasculating. Now, I've never been a second husband. I've never been a first husband. I've never been a husband. So I don't know. I can't speak to it. But I'd love to hear what you guys think. Tiffany, is that emasculating for a man to be called the second husband? Patriarchy is just so toxic. It's just like, that's all I can say to that. I think that's a dumb concept. I think people who are feeding into this narrative, it's just, what are you even thinking about? Like he's literally the second husband to Kamala. Like he's the husband of Kamala and she's the vice president. Like it's just logic here. So people who feel like they're emasculated, it's just like deal with your own issues, work that out. I don't have much for them, I'm sorry. <laughs> like they don't exist in my work. I just think it's dumb. And that might not be politically correct, but I think we need to just stop entertaining sort of conversation. Selena, you wouldn't have a second husband? <laughs> if I ran for vice president and won, yeah, but I have a second husband. Like, I don't really acknowledge too much of like, you know, masculine toxicity in that way that manifests in that way. Like, I, I just, I'm just not here for it. Look, they are not married to a woman that, you know, so they don't have to be wor worry about being called a second husband. Like, you're never going to have that opportunity. I don't understand what the grievance is. Like, like we got to just kind of let things go. Yeah, I agree with you. But speaking of toxic masculinity, we saw a major case of toxic masculinity in Harlem earlier this week. There was a young woman going to a liquor store on 128th Street and St. Nicholas Avenue. If you, you live in Harlem, you've been to Harlem, you know that liquor store. We all know that liquor store. That's not too far from where I live. Um, she was in there getting a bottle of wine. A guy offered to pay for her wine. She said no. Then he got angry, followed her, attacked her, bit her in the face, swallowed up her eyes so much she can't open it and stole her phone. This attack ended up being covered in the news. And then this past Saturday, there was a huge protest in front of that liquor store where hundreds of people gathered to demand justice for this sister. So I know we had the, I don't know if we had the clip of it. If we do, I'd love to show you the clip of the protest that was happening outside of the liquor store. But 
If we don't have the clip, let's just move the conversation straight ahead. Angelo, did you hear about the story? How did you feel about it? What do you think about the response? Oh, yeah, I certainly heard about it. And um, we coordinated with a few folks who were organizing everything that took place yesterday. Um, so we're happy to see the community coming out and support. We knew that would happen. We've seen incidents like this over the past probably year, year and a half recorded or where there was a lot of attention because we know this kind of thing has been going on for a long time. So it was just very important for folks to show up and have the community show up. I don't think we're going to stop seeing these incidents, but I think if we have a strategic plan around really addressing them and really finding the folks who are doing this and holding them accountable, I think we could begin to see a shift because we can't have a scenario where women are feeling that unsafe in the community and not only that unsafe, but being brutalized at all, let alone to that extent without extreme repercussions. Like it's it's tremendously bothersome. I mean, women already aren't feeling safe in these streets because street harassment is a real thing. And we know that the number number two killer for black women ages between the ages of 15 and 36 is um, inter, inter partner homicide. Yeah. So that means they're being killed by black men. So we have a much deeper issue we have to address in our communities. But I do want to get to some of the comments that we're seeing over here. So I saw a comment from Chance Carlton Holloway, and he said, there ain't no masculinity at all. That is an animal. Um, and Chance, I definitely understand the frustration behind this person's behavior, but I don't think it's good to try to like take the humanity away from anybody. The fact of the matter is, any man and every man is capable of that behavior, and what we need to be doing is asking the question is what leads to that behavior. Tiffany, I see you over here. What are you thinking? <laughs> you see me over here just stewing. <laughs> um, I saw that video out there, I was disgusted. And I think it's so much bigger than this sort of, um, this video where it gets people jarred and ready to take action. And I think, you know, big up to those people who were able to organize and mobilize. And I mean this in respectful sense, but I think, you know, organizing and mobilizing protests, we have to move past like making it seem that it's almost performative. And like you said, get to the root causes of that, because I feel like a lot of those men that were saying, screaming and shouting, protect black women, those are your homeboys that you know. So it's more than just some man biting a woman on the face. It's that homeboy that makes that weird ass, excuse my language, sorry, can't probably curse on here. It's that um, your homeboy that, um, you know, makes an off the wall comment and you don't check him, you know, it's that homeboy that's a little too touchy, a little too aggressive and you look the other way. So it's so much more than what we saw on that video. It's like everyday toxic masculinity that so many women have to deal with to the point where I was even considering out here, I'm in Southeast Queens. I was like, yo, I was telling my parents, I was like, yeah, I really think I want to get like a stun gun or something like that. When even we know the reports show that women who carry around firearms, they are even more capable of harming themselves. So with there's no real protection out here for women. So while... Black men are out here shouting, protecting black women. The accountability really has to be on black men and holding each other accountable. Cause I'm tired of seeing these sort of you know stories cause it's disheartening because no one should be attacked like that. And, and comparing men to animals or dogs, whatever the case may be, it should be them of the humanity and it's othering them in a way. And it makes it seem like this sort of behavior is an exception when sometimes it's actually the rule. Yeah. I want to highlight Antoinette J. Gregg's comment. She says, this is how these dudes always are on the street. This is more extreme cut. Excuse me. This is a more extreme case, but they always have some kind of aggressive or combative action when a woman says no. Angelo, how do we address behavior like this? 
You know, I think the protest is necessary. Um, and I think in this scenario, it's even more than a protest. Um, there was a brother who was also killed last week in Baltimore who does um, violence interruption work. He was actually the nephew of um, the lead character who was, who was displayed or depicted in The Wire. Um, and he's been doing violence interruption for a long time. And people were saying, you know, how could he be murdered when he does this work in the community does th knows he does this work? And how do we have a response that's visible that let folks know this is unacceptable? So for me, the protest that happened yesterday, the showing at the liquor store, the folks at the state building on 125th Street, all of that is tremendously important from my perspective, not simply for a protest, but to have a visible response to the community that we're going to do something if this ever happens again and every time it happens. We're going to be outside. We're going to make sure there's a heavy presence of us, not only police. We're going to make folks feel uncomfortable. We're going to find the individual who's responsible for it. I feel like we have to do those things to show, to have a showing of force. I think anything less than that is just going to be ineffective. I think we also need to have the conversations and address what's causing this kind of behavior. But I think as an immediate response, you have to be outside. You have to find the individuals. You have to be hyper visible. Um, and we have to do it every time. I think this will have some impact if we're able to consistently be hyper visible and say, this isn't OK. We're not going to allow this. Maybe the liquor store shouldn't be there. Um, even though, of course, I know it wasn't the liquor store's fault, um, but the hyper visibility is necessary. I think in these scenarios, it's more than a protest and it's kind of a showing that we're not going to allow it to happen. I think just like white supremacists, abusive men should feel unsafe for their behavior. Yeah. If you think you're going to talk to a woman a certain way, you're going to defend the Tory lanes or call women females, you need to know that your life is in danger. Just like a white supremacist. Right. The minute you want to put up that Confederate flag, you need to know your life is in danger and can be ended very quickly. And that'll be a good way to get us going. Selena, you want to close this out for us? We can't hear you, Selena. You're on mute. So while Selena's getting her Sorry style, about that. Um, I thought that the attack was disgusting, barbaric, completely unjustified. I actually wanted to highlight a comment um, from Eric Jackson Sr. Um, that I pretty much feel very aligned with. And hold on, let me just see if I can find it. Do we have the comment from Eric? Well, even, I don't know, we'll get it up in a few more moments. Oh, here it is. So Eric Jackson via LinkedIn says, absolutely, black men should be held accountable and respectfully responsible for protecting our black women, period. Thank you. And we need more black men like Eric, like Stanley, like Angelo, speaking up and holding you know, their, their friends accountable um, their brothers, their sons, their uncles, and their fathers, that behavior is is despicable. Um, and, you know, it leads to larger issues and, and, and conversations about toxic masculinity and patriarchy, but also just, just misogynoir, the disrespect that we have for Black women. Black, and Malcolm X said it best, Black women are the most unprotected um, human beings on the planet Earth. And if we can't even find our own protection in our own communities, where are we supposed to go? And also, you know, this is Harlem. Those are the same Black women that are protesting, are, are marching in the streets and making sure that our voices are heard every time a black man is killed, especially the ones that stand, that looked like they were standing outside of the liquor store. Like, you know, so I, I just, it's very disheartening um, and it's uncomfortable and it we definitely need more change. Thank you, Selena. And speaking of men who don't respect women and don't use lotion, Kodak Black and Lil Wayne both received pardons from the white supremacist in chief, Donald Trump. As you know, Lil Wayne endorsed Donald Trump earlier this year for president, 
and Lil Wayne was also facing gun charges. Kodak Black, who was a known woman beater and has a pending rape charge, was already in prison for a previous violation, and now he's free, at least until this rape case goes through and he may be right back in prison. What do you guys think about these two ashy black women not respecting men getting pardoned by a white supremacist who also doesn't like black women? I think Donald Trump is a smart guy, right? And I think he knows that even Kwame Kilpatrick, I believe, got pardoned as well, um, the former mayor of Detroit. I think he knows pardoning high-profile black folks who the black community often looks to will be what's going to be favorable for him. It may be favorable for plans he has in the future. But I think, you know, it's very clear. This was very, uh, very much so not anything for the black community. It was individual benefit for these guys. Um, and they were going to do whatever they could to get that. I think Little Wayne like others showed visible support for Donald Trump because they knew they wanted to get something from him on the back end and they did. Um, I think in terms of the benefit for the black community, there is none. Um, but I think Donald Trump did a good job throughout his time as president, pretending that he was doing things for black folks, but really doing things for a few black folks who he had close relationships to. I think this is no different from that. Thank you very much, Ray Angelo. I want to just throw it real quick to Tiffany because I know how she feels about Lil Wayne and Kodak Black, but then I want to move <laughs> us on to Trump's latest news. Go ahead, Tiff. We know who the weakest ones are, and it's not black women. <laughs> That's it. Tiffany, thank you so much for the shade. We appreciate it. Okay. All right, let's move things over. Well, actually, we got a couple of comments. Let me get to these comments and see what these folks are going to say. Oh, man. <sighs> so now these folks, Chance says, no one looks to these black men that got their pardon. You know, I wish we could say that was the truth, but I can't because a lot of people look up to Lil Wayne. I don't know my Kodak Black. He can barely speak eligibly, so who knows? <laughs> um, Chance also says, some women are suspect, so you just can't jump in and defend when some females are promoting the behavior they say they don't want. Chance, you calling women females tells them you probably would have looked the other way when a black woman was being attacked because females are for animals, they're not for humans. Let's not ignore the humanity in women. Let's move this right along. Speaking of people who does not see the humanity in people, Donald Trump is looking to start his own political party. He's calling it the MAGA party. Now, we all know Donald Trump feels betrayed by the Republican party because they did not stand up for him enough and say that he won this election, even though all facts, numbers, stats, religion, and every single signal you could be looking for showed that he lost it. So now he's thinking about doing a MAGA party or a MAGA TV station. Selena, if Trump starts a MAGA party, do you think he'll have a lot of support? Yeah, of course. Like 74 million people voted for him in 2020. Like, so, so we all knew Donald Trump was dangerous and destructive. And now he continues to drive a wedge through his own party. However, this may backfire on us because he's driving the Republican Party even further to the right. And we've seen this play out before. When Barack Obama was elected in 2008, that's when the Tea Party mobilized, organized, and got so many far-right extremists elected. Uh, they started raising money, and they got their candidates in Congress and really started holding the Republican Party hostage if they did not cape into their demands. So I kind of feel like Donald Trump is doing the same thing. And what scares me is that how successful the Tea Party was in making in, in really shifting conservatism. Um, we know that Donald Trump, you know, he has his own brand of racism, his own brand of Republicanism, if you will. It's called Trumpism, and it's even more emboldened 
um, and even more outright racist um, in, in, in this 21st century. So I'm scared. Um, I don't like it. I, and it's, it's something that I think that we should be alarmed about. Angelo, so, I, think, I, I mean, I think the MAGA party is a good idea. I'm like, do it. Have a great time. Because for me, I think, to Selena's point, it is going to drive a wedge into the Republican Party. And I think it's going to fracture the Republican Party in a way that I don't personally mind. I feel like the challenge for a MAGA party and even the Republicans moving forward is that they just don't have the numbers that they used to. Um, I think when you look at what folks refer to as the browning of America, white supremacists and folks who support those kind of ideas and ideals are going to become thinner and thinner as years progress. So for me, I love what he's doing because I think it's going to fracture the party. It's going to expose white supremacists throughout America more. And it actually gives us folks on the other side of their ideology an opportunity to mobilize and build more power if we're smart. I think that's the challenge where the Democratic Party will run into some issues if they don't deliver some very clear tangibles for black folks. Because as this MAGA party and Republicans are mobilizing, the Democratic Party really has to mobilize from their base and their most consistent base is us. Thank you so much for that, Angelo. I want to close out this conversation with a comment from Obieta Elizondo. Obieta says, Trump is a cult leader and he is growing his troops. These people have been trained by a society that to take out their anger with violence. When jailed, they need therapy. You know, Obieta, I can't disagree with you at all. You're 100% right. Um, and the cult is full of a whole bunch of disillusioned white folks who are upset because they couldn't go outside where everyone was dying from a pandemic among other things. But we do have to close out the news roundup now, guys. But don't worry, we have an action-packed conversation coming up about the Biden administration, what he's doing, what we can get done for Black people through the administration, and how folks can get involved. So I'll throw it right to Selena. You're on mute, Selena. Sorry about that. Um, thank you so much for that, Stanley. And I did just want to address um, chances going off in the comments. And at one point, he said that only Tiffany and I deserve protection as black women. You are completely wrong, okay? All black women deserve to be protected. I don't, and, and honestly, we need to move away from this toxic thinking that we categorize women and based on the category, the sexist category that you put them in determines their humanity. We need to let that go. Okay, so just to move on, time to talk <laughs> more about Donald Trump. So President, not Donald Trump, actually President Joe Biden, he began his term by signing a flurry of executive orders, actions, and memorandums aimed at rapidly addressing the COVID-19 pandemic and overturning many of Trump's policies. Biden's 30 executive actions include halting funding for construction of Trump's border wall, reversing Trump's travel ban, targeting largely Muslim countries, imposing a mask mandate on federal property, and ramping up vaccination supplies. However, after Black voters propelled Biden to the White House, the new president is being pressured to not only reverse this economic downturn that has devastated communities of color, but also address the decades of racial economic disparity. Many Black Americans are in fact demanding that the newly elected president narrow systemic racial inequalities that have left us trailing way beyond and way behind whites on every economic measure. Biden, who has campaigned on a promise to make racial justice core to every part of his economic agenda 
and vowed in his inaugural address to confront growing inequality and the sting of systemic racism, is actually expected Tuesday to sign executive orders addressing racial equity by closing the racial wealth gap, expanding access to affordable housing, and investing in Black entrepreneurs and communities. So for the remainder of the show, we'll explore if this is a signal that the new administration will be the start of a new America, or if we can and should expect just more of the same. So I wanna open up this conversation, starting with you, Stanley, to ask how you feel about Biden's executive orders and his 100-day plan. Does it go far enough in helping black communities? No, it doesn't go far enough at all. But, you know, it will only go far enough if she was using the kind of politics that AOC has and that, you know, that Bernie Sanders has with a racial analysis to it. Um, I will say it's going to be pretty impactful if he does what he says he's going to do. So there's two things I want to highlight right now. The first one is with Section 8. The Biden administration wants to make Section 8 available to anybody who qualifies for it right now. So if you don't know about Section 8, um, a lot of people qualify for it, but the pool is so small, only a handful of people get it. So you could wait years to be qualified and get approved for Section 8. If he did this right now, we could reduce child poverty and child homelessness by 5%. That's a huge number in the next four years. And guess who was the most housing insecure in America? Black and brown people. He's also reversed the ban on certain countries, which means all those bans in, from countries in Africa and Muslim nations are gone. He also has reassigned ICE. For those of you who don't know, 40% of the people in these ICE facilities were Haitians and Dominicans and Jamaicans. Those are black folks. So he's already moving very, very fast. And a lot of these things that, you know, on its head, it might not seem like it helps black people. It does major things for black folks. Um, the biggest one, or at least the most significant one as far as like symbolism was, he's already rescinded Trump's 1776 commission, which tried to be a response to the 1619 um, articles in New York Times. And the 1776 commission claimed that racism is not real, that slavery shouldn't be talked about, and we should only support and focus on patriotism. The Biden administration also established that advancing equity for all is a responsibility of the government and is directing federal agencies to act on that principle. So now they can start doing implicit bias trainings, which will get funding back to HBCUs who lost funding a couple of months ago when a Trump administration said that it was inappropriate and illegal to treat to teach implicit bias or any racial equity classes at all. And those HBCUs they get money from a clause within that agreement. So these are some good things. I'm excited more needs to be done. Uh, thank you so much for that, Stanley. I actually wanted to go to a comment from Damon Stubbs. Shout out to Damon, who says the 1776 report was trash. Thank God for that. Tiffany, what is your response to Biden's 100-day plan and his first few days in office? Um, his first few days in office, my focus was really on what is he going to do around covid I think we can't do anything legislative-wise or focus on any other policies until we actively get COVID under control, especially because we know COVID has disproportionately impacted Black and Brown communities, even right here in New York City, especially out here in Southeast Queens. We've seen the numbers skyrocket, and even in South Richmond, COVID is over 17%. So before we can even talk about racial equity and all these other things, we need to make sure that COVID is under control right here in our own communities. And I was like really impressed by him just passing, you know, the mass mandate. 
And some of my friends joke and call me like the mass bully and the mass czar because we see people, we see our families who may or may not be taking this seriously enough. But we had an administration that was also not taking this COVID thing seriously enough and not believing in science and not necessarily wanting to get involved and go down the path of where you're going to take the vaccine or not, but just like simple things to protect yourself and protect our communities. I think him really focusing on the COVID, the COVID, the, the COVID crisis is really going to be a make or break for black and brown communities. So I was very um, happy that he signed that mandate because I think that is pivotal and important, especially because we are seeing all these MAGA supporters going into these stores and making these, you know, outrageous sort of, you know, claims and protests and really harming us. <laughs> the, you know, first responders who are black and brown people on the front lines and central workers. Um, I think, as Stanley said, that this is going to be impactful to black and brown communities, more so right. than the past minister. It's going to be very impactful for us. And even if you take a step closer and what he's trying to do with the student loan, forgiving student loan debt, that's going to be pivotal for us. And that can really close a lot of the racial wealth gap, especially for people who don't even have a degree. There's tons of people who went to college, have some college, and still are walking around with debt and don't have a degree to show for it. So imagine right. just wiping out 20 to 30 G's for people. That's that's home ownership, potential home ownership. You know, so that that's, that can really drastically change the black community, black and brown community for a lot of people. Um, Angelo, you know, Tiffany and, and Stanley somewhat also gave very positive um, accounts of this new administration that has been ushered in. I know you have been someone who has not been the biggest fan of Joe Biden for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, have you been at all impressed with his first few days and his 100-day plan? I don't think it's impressive. I think he's done what he needed to do, like the basics. Like, I think he he's taken us back to ground zero. Like, we're getting closer to where we should have been as a country. So I'm not impressed by it. I think he's just done what we expected of him and what he's been put into office to do. I think he has a lot to do before I start to say he's impressive. Um, I don't know if he'll get too impressive for me. I think the things he did were important, were critical, were things that needed to be done and can move the needle forward. But I don't know if his administration, and I don't know if he has the kind of foresight vision to really transform America the way in which it needs to be transformed for all people, but particularly doesn't have the vision to transform America or the willingness to transform America in the way that it needs to be transformed for black folks. That's my biggest fear and opposition. It's not just for Joe Biden, but it's for anyone who becomes the president or moves into elected, um, elected office. They usually do not have the kind of vision. They usually do not have the kind of team. They usually do not have the kind of policies ready to go that will transform black life. A lot of folks don't know what to do um, right. so they start to give black folks symbolic victories. Well, you know, speaking of that, uh, what speaking of that vision, what type of agenda do black folks need right now that would transform America? Uh, I, I think the first thing is give black people what they've been asking for. I think there's two things that I've been consistently saying when I reviewed and folks who haven't, you should look at Joe Biden's lift every voice plan, which is his plan for black America. There's two things that I believe probably two of the top three things that I feel like black folks have been asking for in this political moment. One is reparations. The other is for some response to policing in America. What we often have heard is defund the police. 
Joe Biden's plan, Lift Every Voice, his plan for Black America, addresses neither of those things. It mentions reparations once in saying that, okay, we'll support a study bill. So he has no intent on doing anything with regards to implementing and moving forward the needle on reparations. He has no intent, and he said it, to defund the police. So for me, that's a huge challenge. The two issues that are probably most squarely positioned as Black specific issues. Biden says he has no plan. I think to the sister's point, like he needs a COVID response plan. I think that's very important too, but I don't see any vision there either. I think the mask mandate was the basics. Like you got to tell people to do that. You have to make that a thing. I don't think we've seen any vision from him in that regard either. Like how do you actually address the COVID pandemic? I think he's doing the basics, but we've seen nothing that's really going to get it under control. I think we need leadership now in this moment, and COVID has kind of exposed it, that really responds to ineffective systems. And Joe Biden, from my perspective, his history, his legacy has not shown that he's a person with that kind of vision, right, or that kind of skill set. Right. I'm hoping he brings some people into the administration who has it, but it, it's not evident that he will. Well, to your point, Lamara Hunter Kelly left a comment via Facebook saying, isn't it premature to judge Biden off of his first few days in office? Can we at least give him a month? This country is all screwed up due to the ignorance of the previous administration. And it took him four years. So Lamara made a great point. Um, Stanley, I definitely want to kick it over to you because, you know, the fact of the matter is Biden was elected as a moderate. And he has a narrow majority in Congress, which means he cannot just make sweeping policy changes without winning some support from Republicans. You know, to Angelo's point, is the country ready for reparations? Because it might not just fall on Biden. He's he has to represent all constituents and all Americans. And if the country's not calling for it, I don't think he's going to do it. So let me just go back real quick and respond to the COVID-19 thing. I want to push back gently on that, um, Angelo. The, the Biden administration has a, a, a hundred day plan for COVID. Mm -hmm. including getting 100 million people vaccinated within their first 100 days and reopening schools by April. Um, and along with that, he's got the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that Democrats are getting ready to put in there. And they're currently writing a bill to send families with children $3,600 per child. So they're like, they're moving. It's not as far as you need to go, but like, I wouldn't say there's not a vision there. Um, now to go to like the other question you were asking, can you repeat this, that question against me? I'm sorry. I just wanna make sure I get it right. Sure. So I said, is the country ready for reparations? Oh. Um, go ahead, Stanley. And is and it no, they're not, and they're not ready for to defund the police either. Um, I think that we got a lot of work to do to make sure folks with defunding the police. I think we have a lot of work to do to help folks understand that police, prisons, and jails do not equal to safety, and that if you want to address problems of crime and harm and do harm reduction in your community, it's not about arresting folks or having more cops there. It's about creating good paying jobs, safe, affordable housing, and resources for people who are struggling with drug addiction and mental health issues. But most people don't see that yet. In New York, we passed the bail law. Um, everyone supported it. A couple of scary articles later, a, a bunch of people didn't support the bill anymore because the fact of the matter, we're just, just not there yet politically. So I think it's a challenge to organize. We've got to do a lot more work to get a lot more people on our side, and then we got to push these elected officials. Can I respond to Stanley quickly? Yes. You know, your point is well taken, Stanley, around, I don't think Biden has a vision for COVID. I think it's the bare necessity. I still believe that. I think some of the things are important. I think the stimulus is tremendously important. You got to do that. Hopefully something passes that substantive 
for folks. It's yet to be seen that it will be, so I'm not going to give them credit for that. But your point around bail reform and, and some of these issues around criminal justice reform, to me, if you parallel it to COVID, there's no explanation that needs to be done. When I think about COVID, I'm past the point where I have to explain to someone the importance of wearing a mask. I'm not having that conversation anymore. This got to happen. You better do it or something's going to happen. There's going to be some consequences for it. And I think there's a lot of things around COVID where it's like we're past the point of explaining it. This is a pandemic. Let's address it. Let's move forward. When I think about criminal justice reform, I think the same way. I'm not going to I'm going to try to explain to folks to the degree possible, but we're past the point of explaining some of these things because we see the impact. We see people dead in the street. There's over 2000 people who've died in jails and prisons because of COVID. Am I going to waste my time or not to just waste my time? Do I think there is usefulness in trying to validate people's claims around it? Or should I just move the issue forward because there's a prevailing narrative and prevailing impact that says I need to? That's my issue with, when the conversations around defunding the police happen. It's like, let's use the same logic. Let's use the same thoughtfulness when we talk about COVID, right? We're not going to have conversations around why masks are important. Like, come on, if you don't get that, something's wrong. We're going to move forward. We're going to do it. I think we need to do the same with defunding the police. Everyone's not going to get it, and we shouldn't try to make everyone get it. Well, good point there. I know Ebony, uh, well, hold on, Stanley, you had a 15 second response before we keep it moving. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Very so, quickly, go ahead, Stanley. Yeah, like you can't even get all black people to agree we got to defund the police. Go to some neighborhoods and they'll be the ones telling you to bring more cops there and to knock the kid over the head. We're not there yet. We need to organize our communities. I'm not even talking about white folks. There's a lot more work to be done before we have the kind of support we need to push our elected officials. So that was my point. Oh, thank you for that, Stanley. So Ebony um, Inifi, um, forgive me for mispronouncing your name, uh, via Facebook says, we've given every president a chance, yet we are still dealing with the issues from centuries back. Tiffany, we haven't heard you in a while. We wanted to get you a, a chance to chime in. I think the debate here is like, yes, we want this radical agenda, but if the country is not ready for it, how do we expect elected, uh, elected officials to push for it? Um. I would say let's expand. Okay, so we're talking about the first 100 days. I say let's expand it a little bit further. We really have two years before you know we have uh, the midterm elections. So we have two years to organize our communities, Stanley. We have two years to get people to where we want them to be around defunding the police. The squad just expanded. They got Jamal Bowman, That they got Corey Bush. You know, they got a bunch of new members that are part of the squad that also need to organize their own members within Congress, okay? We have the White House, okay? We have both legislatures. We even have some people, you know, on the ground really supporting some of these radical, you know, proposals that we're putting forth. But we have two years to do this because we have such a small margin when it comes to victory. And we know that Kamala is going to be the uh, deciding vote and we know which way she's going to flow. So I think we have two years to get our act together and push these elected officials to where we want to go. We want Georgia. So we know what can happen when we mobilize our people when we organize the basic functions of government work, the basic function, just voting, when we get our people organized and we empower them and re-enfranchise their voting, we can do that. So we have two years to get reparations. We have two years to defund the police or get them as close as possible. So I wouldn't, I said, we have to like get out of this mind frame of just a hundred days, but really because midterms elections are gonna be make or break for the Democrats, and we know how the Democrats go because you know they have this like whole moral conscience, and it's like no, the Republicans play for keeps, 
And we need to play for keys when it comes to black people and brown people's communities. We really have to get we have to get to that, you know, that, that sort of um, ideology. Thank you, Tiffany. So we received a comment from Robert Kemp via Facebook who says reparations can be tuition free college education, no federal taxes for 30 years, 100 percent student loan forgiveness, no down payment interest, uh, interest free federal home loans. 200,000 business grants and 800 credit score restart. Sounds like Robert definitely has a plan for the next four years. Um, Angela, I definitely want to get you to chime in because, you know, to Tiffany's point, um, if we have a vision like that and we do organize, do you think it's possible to pass something like this? I think it is. I think it's not going to be done by somebody like Joe Biden. I think um, to Tiffany's point, when you look at the kind of mobilization that happened around places like Georgia, the kind of mobilization that could happen in places like Kentucky, um, when you look at candidates like Cory Booker and the ways in which folks can really begin to shift and create more power, particularly black folks, building more black power, as I say, because that's what I, I've been saying to folks, Georgia wasn't blue, that's not what happened, it's black. And I think you have places around the country where that is a truth and you can really mobilize to create the power to force Biden to do what he needs to do. Joe Biden, that administration, I think a lot of what we deem progressive Democrats do not care about reparations. That's just a fact, which means and they don't really a lot of them don't care about defunding the police or they don't think that's a good idea. We heard Warnock of Georgia saying he wasn't going to do that. Right. In Atlanta. So. The reality is the folks who are in the positions to make the difference don't look at our issues the way we do. And even if they do, they know it's politically dangerous to say it. So they're being very careful. And that's the challenge we're going to confront in the first 100 days. I think the reason why people are saying the first 100 days is because the first 100 days will indicate what we can expect for the next four years. So I think that's why people are putting this emphasis on paying attention to what happens in the first 100 days. For me, one of the things that we have to be very thoughtful about and the reason why I don't give Joe Biden a chance, like I don't give him a chance. I think he needs to do what he needs to do now is because you're not really looking at a first term president. You're looking at a president who was vice president for eight years. So you're really looking like looking at a carry on from a previous administration. So you're really going to be looking at a man who was in executive power for about 12 years at the end of his first four years. And if he hasn't delivered anything for black folks of, of substance in 12 years of being in the executive position in some capacity in the United States of America, we're going to look wild crazy. So for me, it's like you have to hold him accountable up front and make sure he delivers fast, fast, fast. Um, before we I give Stanley chance to respond to that and Angelo's uh, pessimism, um, we do have a comment from uh, Melvin. Uh, Yes, Melvin DeBose from Facebook who says, what is wrong with you people? The man has been in office for five minutes and y'all want him to fix 400 plus years in five minutes? Shaking my damn head. I sure hope these are bots. Um, Stanley or Tiffany, if they want to respond, um, are, are we putting, are we being unfair? I mean, Angela made a great point. Are we, are we being unfair? Yes and no. Um, Yes, because yeah, like the system of white supremacy and all the different mechanisms weren't built in one presidential term, let alone a one day. So we, you know, it's it's reason it's it's reasonable to say that like it's not all going to be toppled in four years, especially when white supremacy is probably at its most visceral than it's been since maybe the nineteen fifties. But no, because I think what Angelo said was one hundred percent right. This is not a brand new presidency. 
He's been in executive seat for eight years. There's no learning curve. And they are all well aware, trust me, they are well aware if they do not deliver with tangible results for people, they will lose everything in a year and a half. Because really, you don't have two years, you have a year. Then after that, it's all about primary elections for the congressional and Senate seats. And Republicans are going to try and get back the majority in the Senate and in Congress so that they can stop Biden from doing anything. That's what they did to Obama. What we can do and what we should be doing is consistently organizing for the things that we want. Tiffany hit the nail on the head. Whenever we organize and we consistently organize, the mechanisms of government work in our favor. But Angela's right. Biden is not going to deliver reparations. I don't need him to. I need that study to come out. I need it to show what we all know what needs to show. I need it to say the things that our friend, I forgot the guy's name, who came with a full plan for reparations in the comments. I need to make those recommendations. And now I can organize the next president or I can organize whoever to make sure we get it. Like, you know, like, like any, like they always tell you in any legislative campaign before you start it, you like, you don't expect to win it in the first year. If you win it in the first year, you probably will lose it because you haven't done the work to shift the minds on the ground. So any legislative campaign is a multi-year fight. So with this reparations fight, I'm looking at, I'm looking at it as like a long-term fight, but at least it's a long-term fight what is a light at the end of the tunnel, whereas before there wasn't. It wasn't even a conversation point at the national level. Tiffany, I wanted to give you some time to chime in as well. Um, first off, we're not bots. <laughs> we are active people who are moving, we're talking, we are conversing with each other. We're not bots. <laughs> so that's first off. Um, I would say we're all pretty politically engaged. We're active, we're on the ground, we're, in, we're doing movement work. So we all know that it takes time and for legislations and policies to happen. But I think it's also unfortunate that black and brown communities and people and families always have to wait and wait. And the candidates always getting kicked down the road until we see another video of someone getting shot or another uh, woman is getting brutally beaten. So like how, how many more uh, of these sort of instances do we have to see to galvanize us, to mobilize us, to really engage in this process, to understand that, no, we need this legislation now Okay, we need you to actually act now because you ran on this campaign, you ran on this policy, and we need to make sure that you actually pass this piece of legislation because this is what you said that you were going to do. And there's nothing wrong with holding our elected officials um, accountable. This is the government for the people, by the people, though they try to you know, forget about black and brown people, but we have to do something. So I don't think it's too soon, we have to wait and see. No, wait and see gets us killed. Wait and see, make sure that we don't have affordable housing, that climate change disproportionately impacts us, that we keep getting brutalized by the police. So we do not have a time to keep waiting. We have to push our elected officials. We have to keep our foot on their necks every chance we get, even the ones that we like. The AOCs and the Cory Bush, love them, think they're great. They always need to feel the pressure that they can be also voted out. So we always have mm. to keep pressure on our elected officials. We never to may feel that, oh, we have to wait and see because wait and see is getting us killed, literally. Thank you for that, Tiffany. So we're getting some great comments. Antoinette J. Gregg says via Facebook, Joe Biden has been in a position of power for decades. He knows what black folks want and has ignored it consistently. Democrats always do the bare minimum and expect us to bail them out of every, bail them out every time. He needs the pressure put on him from day one. You know, to that point, Angela, and the points that you've been making, if Biden fails to accomplish what we are asking in his first term, 
do you think we should go out and still vote for him? Or should we can, what, what would you see? What would you say should be the alternative? Like, I mean, I don't think you would advocate for voting for the Republican party. What, what would you say needs to be the, the answer if he does not give us our demands? We're in a very precarious situation. Um, I think you can't vote for the Republican party because you know you'll get less than nothing. Um, you're going to get some hell with your nothing, which is what we saw with Donald Trump and the white supremacists running crazy. I think you really can't go in that direction. The Republican Party also hasn't really done anything to, sh aside from symbolic um, appointments and, and kind of standing next to black people, they haven't done anything to show that they'll create an agenda for black folks. So I don't think that's an option. I think one of the things that black folks should seriously begin to consider um, is creating some kind of formation, um, some kind of superstructure that allows us to organize, that allows us to be unified, that allows us to hash out some of what we're hashing out today around differences. Are we ready for this? Can we get ready? and mobilizing like you saw in Georgia and mobilizing like you saw across America, that is not affiliated clearly with the Democratic Party. And that probably creates more power locally to shift Congress even more, to get some wins in states that we know need them and say to the Democratic Party, hey, we're not actually sure what we're gonna do with you as far as the presidential election goes. And we wanna have some conversations before the election happens to clearly tell you what you need to do and if you can agree with that, then you could get our vote. I think we're in a very challenging scenario, which I think is actually a good place because we're finally in the place where we're like, we have to get something for what we've contributed. And if we don't, we got to move different. And I think that's what's happening in so many sectors of our society. And I think COVID has kind of exposed the system failures in a way that says we need new system responses. So I think that's part of the challenge and really getting what we need in this moment. It's not that we're not organized. It's not that we're not thoughtful. It's that we're in a very different political and social moment. So I think we need to continue to build the power that we built in Georgia and across this country in a unified way to create demands that really are moving things locally. And then in four years, actually before four years, probably in three years, sitting down with the Biden administration and say, what have you done? What are the gaps we want to see you fill? And can you do it? And then I think that's where our kind of starting point is. Um, Stanley, you know, Angela made a great point about um, doing something different. If we don't see something different during the Biden administration, what would your alternative solution be if Biden falls short? Well, before we talk about what my alternative solution would be, I think we should ask the question that Damon Stubbs asked in the chat which is what is the clear determining line of success? What is the clear expectation that has community consensus? If we aren't clear, we run the risk of indirectly suppressing our own vote by discouraging people away from the political process. So I'll tell you what are some tangible things I would like to see. And if I see these things, I'll be encouraged to vote for Biden again or another Democrat again, and I'll encourage others. So student loan forgiveness. Obviously I want 100%. That probably doesn't happen in this political climate with these Democrats. But can we get as much as 50,000, particularly for folks who went to HBCUs, state and city universities? Can we create a path to citizenship that doesn't just help Mexicans and South Americans, that helps black people, including millions of Haitian people who want their citizenship in America, right? Can we invest more in education and raise the minimum wage? Because the group that, that has the most number of people in poverty right now or getting paid poverty wages are black and brown people. So that'll help those folks. So if we do those things, I'd be pretty happy. Um, and I'd feel encouraged enough to vote Democrat. That being said, 
I think that black folks need to be consistently and actively building their own operation of political power. Um, whether Democrats do well or not, Democrats are not the solution to these problems. We need something different. So you know, you guys know already, Selena, I'm with the Working Families Party. Now there's our Black Party and it's other folks trying to start their own political parties and groups. And we need to continue to do that and build our own mechanisms that center issues that impact Black people. I would say center it with a Pan-Africanism um, um, frame, but that's just me talking to myself. Um, Tiffany, you know, as we start to bring this conversation to a close, what would you say needs to be done to improve Black communities over the next four years? What What does your vision look like? So I'm going to still sum up uh, Stanley's talking points. First, I would definitely leave with student loan forgiveness. I think that's going to be huge for Black people, especially Black women. Um, I think that's going to be a huge low off of a lot of Black folks living in our communities. Like I said, especially folks who did not even graduate with a degree, but are walking around with tons and tons of debt. I also think um, living wages. I know people, you know, like to roll their eyes or say disparity comments around the minimum wage and how he wants to raise the federal minimum wage to $15. But if you look at, you know, these minimum wage jobs, who are working at these jobs? They're their they're older uncles, your aunties, your cousins. You know, they look just like you, you know? So I think we really need to look at these living wages and people should be able to work a living to make a living wage, especially if they're working 40 plus hours um, out in the Bronx over the weekend, they just won, they just went on strike for $1, $1. So we need to really like, you know, put that into context when we're talking about living wages and wages have not gone up for, you know, a few decades, but we know everything else around us is going up. So I think that's gonna be a real issue for black and brown families. And um, definitely I say the third thing would definitely be, you know, talking about, you know, police accountability and defunding the police. Like Stanley said, a lot of our communities are not at the, you know, defunded police, uh, you know, part, but I do think they know something has to be done. It is more than just reform, it's more, it's more than just putting a black face in front as a commissioner, but we really need to talk about how our police are interacting with our communities. How are they, you know, dealing with social services issues and it just can't be, oh, we're gonna just fire these bad cops. We really need to talk about dismantling the police and how they interact in black and brown communities. And I feel like if they really tap into those three things, I think we can really see some major impact in our communities and our lives. Absolutely. And Stanley, as we begin to bring this conversation to a close, I want to get your final thoughts on moving ahead for black communities in the next four years. Yeah, thank you, Selena. And I want to kind of answer a question that was asked by Cynthia. She said, how can we feel organized? I can only speak for myself but I feel 100% aligned on the outcome, but not on how to get there from here. Well, Cynthia, first of all, thank you so much for asking that question. That's a question a lot of people have on their plates right now. It is very simple. The way that we win, we build black power is through organizing, community organizing, because you as one person has power, but you with 100 people are powerful in a way that can shift things and change the conversation. So I would encourage you to find an organization that helps to empower your organizing. One you feel politically aligned with, one that is fighting for the same things you're fighting for, one that helps to give you and others the tools to change stuff. Until Freedom is a great organization to look into, and Angelo is here, so I'll let him tell you how you guys can get involved through there. But there are plenty of organizations all across the country that you can be and you should be engaging with. So please, all you folks with all this energy to, do, to fight for this change, we need you. We need our own progressive version of the Tea Party so we can get all the things we deserve organize and do over organizations. If there's not one that represents what you want, then build your own. 
Angela, we definitely want to give you the final word as a community organizer, a movement lawyer, and the work you've been doing, the, the incredible impactful work through un Until Freedom. Um, what would you say needs to be done uh, next four years? Well, thank you all for having me again. It was an honor. The comments are wild. I wish we had more time to dive into them. Um, I think Black folks have to do more of what they've been doing. Like the amount of organizing that took place to get Biden in office, the amount of organizing that took place in Georgia to get Warnock and Ozoff in office, the amount of organizing that placed a lot of folks in great positions of power throughout the country were, was as a result of tremendous Black-led, on-the-ground organizing day in and day out. I believe we need to continue to build from that position of Black power and identify the other places that similar things can be done. I think Kentucky is one of them when you look at um, candidates like Charles Booker, who will be probably have to run against Mitch McConnell. Um, and I think when you look at the spaces throughout Kentucky that are Black, you can turn Kentucky blue if that's what you wanted to do. And I think there are other states around the country. I, th I think the other things, and I've been saying to folks lately, is that we have to build a broader network of Black power. And for me, that means aligning with the Black and Indigenous folks and see where we have similar agenda items. Um, and Black folks can consolidate and build more power there. Um, I think the other thing is we got to stay on Joe Biden's neck. I think there's there has not been a moment in history, from my perspective, where the Democratic Party has realized, believed, and understood that they owe Black people more than now. And I think that means Joe Biden has to deliver, deliver, deliver. I think we have to keep our foot on his neck for the next four years to make sure he delivers. I understand folks' sentiment that he just got into office, but that doesn't matter. He has work to do, and I, and I think we just have to stay on his neck. And if we don't, and he doesn't deliver, I think you will see fractures in the Black kind of political landscape. So I think the pressure is not only important with regards to making sure Biden does what he needs to do, but it's important with respect to us continuing to consolidate and build power. Thank you all for having me. Hopefully I can come back. No, of course, Angela, we always love when you have you um, have you here and be heard talk. So thank you so much. And I just want to end by saying this, you know, in the midst of the celebrations of the first black woman who was uh, elected to VP in the midst of the celebration that we officially told Donald Trump, Are you about to lose your job because he did. In the midst of that, I think we need to remain very diligent and not get caught up in the hype. And I say that because in 2008, when Barack Obama was elected president, it was such a joyous celebration and we achieved so much, but I feel like us on the left did not come prepared with an agenda and we did not come prepared to fight hard enough. There were a lot of us who were moving, but there were too many of us like me who was just simply happy with black folks in the White House. No longer do we have that same temperament. So yes, I'm celebrating Joe Biden's win, but I'm also very guarded and very cautious because, and also very adamant about the fact that if he does not, meet up to the demands and meet up to um, the, the pressure and the needs that we have in our communities, then he also will lose his job. And I think we have to take, we have to embrace that sentiment. We cannot get comfortable because when we get comfortable, they get too comfortable and they take our votes for granted. And honestly, that is stopping now, today, 2021, and for uh, moving forward. 
So on that note, I just want to thank everyone who tuned in to Be Heard Talk today. Again, thank you to Angelo Pinto. Please support him and Until Freedom. They are doing the work that keeps us free and fighting for our civil rights. So continue to do that and continue to also support Be Heard Talk as we aim to always inform, educate, and empower you guys. We'll see you again next week. Bye.